as an older physician, I am very enthusiastic about what the end-stage renal disease program has done because before 1973, most people who had developed end-stage renal disease were just going to die because there was no treatment available. Or if there were treatments available, nobody could afford them. The dialysis costs more than $100,000 a year for a patient. And that cost is now largely taken up by the federal government. not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Dr. Kimmel is a nephrologist, he's not your doctor. We always recommend that you see a licensed professional accordingly. I I have to say, this is a topic we were just talking before we recorded that is not something that a lot of people think about, but is something that is important. And so I'm excited to have this discussion with Paul Kimmel, who is an MD and clinical professor of medicine emeritus at George Washington University in DC, which I don't know if you know this, um, Dr. Kimmel, but I'm actually in Reston, Virginia. So we're pretty close. Um, We're neighbors. We are, yes. But you are also a master of the American College of Physicians and a fellow of the Royal Society of Physicians in London. That sounds so fancy, fans. He has taught both nationally and internationally and cared for patients with over 46 years of experience in the medical field. And uh, Dr. Kimmel is the author of more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific papers. That's incredible, by the way. And an editor of monographs on HIV-associated kidney diseases, nutrition in patients with kidney disease, psychosocial aspects of kidney disease, and a textbook entitled Chronic Renal Disease. And now you're here to discuss your new book, The Body Keepers, A Social History of Kidney Failure and Its Treatments, which is available next week, February 13th. Um, It is as you define it a remarkable account of the kidney and the scientific medical and health evolution tied to our understanding of it. And fun fact, when I was going through and reading the book, you reference a JAMA article on the power of placebo from 1955 that I actually included recently in a discussion on the mind-body connection, but I didn't know that he also went on to help establish and define informed consent, which that's, this obviously Beecher is incredible, but he titled a paper called Experimentation and Man after the horrors of World War II, which had a huge impact on modern medicine, especially for transplants and organ donation. So it's fascinating to me how wide your breadth of knowledge is on not just kidney specifically, but all the kind of areas that feed into it. And I'm excited to dive deeper into all of this with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe a fun personal anecdote? Because we've heard all of your 
dry, amazing accomplishments, but you're also a human being. Well, thank you for inviting me to your uh, podcast. I think that you pointed out something that's really important, which is this book is a history. And um, your interest in Beecher is very important. I had never heard of Beecher until I started to research the book. And most of the book is based on science that occurred in the 40s and 50s and 60s and legislation and social aspects of what was going on in the United States in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So I came across Beecher, and I think you're right. He's a remarkable person who basically moved clinical science and ethics forward in a remarkable way in the 1960s. And that's one of the exciting aspects of the book. The book is really perhaps 100 mini biographies of patients, physicians, scientists who move the field forward. So I'm a physician who trained in Bellevue Hospital in New York City, where I felt a very strong connection to my patients who were often indigent and poorly health literate. And I moved to GW where most of my patients were African-Americans. And I think that inspired me to care for people with kidney disease who couldn't afford treatments. And that's one of the wonderful things about the treatment of end-stage kidney disease in the United States today, that for the majority of people who've been in the workforce, their treatment is supported by federal dollars as an entitlement. So that's one of the great things about the United States. I love that the work that you now focus on as it talks about the history, but also the social justice aspects of the history of kidney disease and, and where we are today. I think that's important for me. When we talk about health and wellness on the show, we talk about it as being community care and it being super important that when we think about health and wellness, that we're thinking about it for everybody. And so just kudos to you. That is the path that you have taken as well, because it's not necessarily one that was well understood when your career got started, I'm sure. So I'm, it sounds like you have been part of that movement and just thank you for that. Before we get started, though, I'm wondering if you can maybe share an overview of exactly what the kidneys do and how they do it. You talk about a big shift in the 19th and 20th century when pioneers who sought to understand the working of the kidneys learned more about them. And I think having that baseline is important to start with if you don't mind getting us off on the, on the right page to, together on the same page. Sure. Thanks. The kidneys really are remarkable organs because in some ways they're the accountants of the bodies. That's why I call my book The Body's Keepers. So prime aspect of the kidney is that it keeps us in a state of equilibrium, which scientists since the 19th century have called homeostasis, a term coined by Claude Bernard in France in the 19th century, meaning that our internal environment is stable over the course of days, weeks, months. Concentration of sodium, the concentration of water, the concentration of potassium, concentration of blood in uh, of, of red cells in our blood is relatively constant. 
And it's the kidney's job to keep it constant. So if one day we eat a lot of salt, the kidneys will respond by within 24 or 48 hours, greeting that amount of salt. If we eat one day a great deal of potassium or a great deal of calcium, the kidney's responsibility is balancing that intake with output over the next day. So they are really uh, very important for keeping us healthy. And the corollary of that is when they don't work, we are immediately not healthy because the kidneys can't do their job. The other thing that the kidneys do that people don't know about is that they're responsible for making hormones that affect other health systems in the body. So they make a hormone 125, which is an active vitamin D compound, which is very important for bone health. But with kidney disease, patients may not have strong skeletons. They make compounds that affect blood pressure and other functions in the body. And they make a very important compound called erythropoietin, which is key in maintaining our hematocrits or hemoglobin levels in the blood. Erythropoietin is a very strong factor in the synthesis of red blood cells from the bone marrow, and it's very important in combating anemia. That becomes a complication for patients who have kidney disease. So the kidney is involved in much more than creating urine, which is what most people think they do for a living. Yeah, I definitely have my preconceived notions based on my sister having a kidney stone or my grandfather having kidney disease. And I think it'll be interesting to learn more about it because I truly am very unfamiliar <laughs> with kidney disease and what leads up to it. I'm wondering how many people it affects. Well, current um, buzzwords are that it affects probably one out of eight people, both in the United States and in the world, so a, a large number. Definitions are all about the details, of course, and you can define kidney disease very broadly um, occurring when there's a slight decrease in kidney function or where there's a little bit of proteinuria or whether there's a catastrophic decrease in kidney function that's known as end-stage kidney disease or end-stage renal disease, which will require a person to have some important treatment or face the risk of death with important treatments, including transplantation or dialysis. So the current numbers that are estimated in the United States is about 37 million people out of a population of a little more than 330 million people with chronic kidney disease and uh, close to a million people with end-stage renal disease, depending on how it's defined. So an important illness, it's not as prevalent as heart disease or cancer as a cause of death, but it's very important when it affects you or a loved one. And of the one of eight people that it's affecting, is that including people where it's undetected? Because I know you talk in the book about it being very often undetected and untreated. So those numbers can often be underrepresented. Yes, it is. It is thought to be uh, including people who don't know that they have kidney disease, which is important because people should 
know that they have kidney disease because it can be treated or ameliorated under a physician's care and certainly should be monitored. So the number of people who have diagnoses is smaller than these estimates. The estimates are fairly good because there's a program in the United States which aims to collect representative samples of the whole United States population. So it will go to physicians, people who have access to medical care. But in many ways, kidney disease is a disease of poverty affecting people who don't have access to medical care, who don't go to physicians, people who don't get screened. It is the month of self-care and it is time to give yourself some love. Switch out some of your products for safe and effective ones. Give the brand that literally changed America's personal care industry a try. And I've got a new exclusive offer for you. While Beauty Counter's Clean for All 20 code applies site-wide when using an email that's never ordered before, now you can apply it to already discounted regimens, which is up to 40% savings on a high-performance four-step routine. You've heard me talk before about how important it is to have a wash, prep, treatment, and protect step, and now you can get that whole bundle deeply discounted for optimizing effectiveness. And I would love to help you pick out just the right thing to love the skin that you're in. You can always email me at stacy at realeverything.com so that I can help you. But of course, you can choose your own. And if you don't love it, you have 60 days to return anything that you get from Beauty Counter, no questions asked. Plus, Shopping With Me supports my woman-owned small business, and you're voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp that is mission-led and whose goal is to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws, while also giving back to people and the planet through sustainable fair trade ingredients. Go to beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth, just like any other website, and choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H, so I can thank you. I think that was one of the areas of the book that really hit home for me was thinking of this as a disease of poverty and lack of public health interventions. But you also go on to discuss that there's a lot more at play relative to that. Can you share more about the social and genetic factors of or how they relate to determinants of health? Who kind of poignant vignettes about what might happen because people don't have access to medical care is somebody from a background where they don't have a lot of uh, visits to physicians, a lot of screening, a lot of uh, physical examinations and laboratory examinations. A young man is inducted into the army or wants to volunteer for the armed services and finds out at the age of 18 that and he has proteinuria and will not be allowed to serve in the military. And that starts a cascade, hopefully, of obtaining treatment for somebody who we didn't know had kidney disease. A terrible story is known by many emergency physicians, the person who comes to the emergency room saying, I just don't feel well over the last couple of days. I, I feel tired. I don't have an app. I'm, I'm I'm sleepy, I don't feel well. And on evaluation, that person has end-stage kidney disease, 
like has never been diagnosed and became a huge shock. That person will soon be on dialysis and be transitioned from feeling that one is healthy to starting on dialysis is a fraught one. We often call it crashing into dialysis because um, a patient has to be provided with access to the vascular system, to the blood, to be able to have dialysis. And that will be a shock for many people. So those are just two, of, two examples regarding how a person may find out that he or she has kidney disease at a very late stage. And of course, that's the public health imperative to prevent that from happening, to be able to detect kidney at an early stage. The other interesting fact is that when I was a medical student in the early 90s, our medical teachers and pathologists told us very clearly that in the United States, there was a vast disparity between the portion of African-Americans who would develop kidney disease and need treatment for kidney failure compared to people of other ethnic uh, groups. And because of the vast disparity, and many of the professors felt at that time that there would be an underlying genetic basis to the disparity. It turned out that the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease and studies that were done um, in the uh, 90s and aughts uh, were able to um, identify a specific variant in a gene associated with um, the development and progression of kidney disease. The gene is called ApoL1, and the variants are changes in the genetic structure that convey the association with kidney disease. In an interesting understanding of population health, it thought that the evolution of these gene variants is as a response to African sleeping sickness or trypanosomiasis, a parasitic disease that quite common in sub-Saharan Africa. And as you think about sickle cell disease is a genetic variation that arises in most cases to make a person less likely to develop malaria. But if a person has two genes that are abnormal, want to develop a terrible disease, sickle cell disease, we have the same situation with a common genetic outcome of great susceptibility to end-state renal disease in the specific population of people of recent African descent in the United States. So it's a very interesting, strong interaction between biology, genetics, and the environment. And the environmental aspect of poverty and inability to access medical care or to um, not be able to afford medications are uh, some of the social determinants of health that interact as environmental factors with genetic and biological factors to result in either health or disease. That's a uh, long answer, isn't it? No, it's but it's a great one. And I definitely, one of the things that stood out to me was the genetic factor because we've actually done several shows on genetics, epigenetics, and social determinants of health. And 
even just recently did a show on weight loss injectables and talking about how it's addressing hormone function and doesn't affect type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. That's where the medication came from, right? So I think a lot of the information that's coming out from the health and wellness space that at least that I'm interested in lately is realizing that there's a lot more play than just the idea that it's a lack of willpower or this idea that it's somebody's own fault if they have, for example, hypertension or diabetes that then is a factor in kidney disease or other health areas. I'm wondering what else are factors as we're living our lives, maybe someone who is listening to the show today, who is also not as aware as I am as it relates to what leads up to kidney disease. Could you talk about that a little bit separate from genetics? Because that is what it is, right? There's the, that is either in your genes or not in your genes, but there are also factors that we do have a little more control over and whether or not being chronically dehydrated plays a factor, things that we might be able to be aware of or prevent. You raised a very interesting point earlier about potential stigma associated with disease, especially with genetic disease. And I mentioned that the book is basically hundreds of small bibliographic themes. And it relates to the NIDDK effort to identify a genetic basis for kidney disease. Typically, National Institute of Health studies have advisory channels. And in the FINE study, which was one of the studies of the genetics of diabetic kidney disease, panel included the work that scientists in particular, Dr. George Dunstan of Howard University, who is a geneticist and an ethicist, uh, was on this particular NIDDK advisory panel. And as genetic information was collected from people, the question that he kept asking, which is highlighted in the book, was, what are you going to do if you find being associated with kidney disease, specifically in African Americans? And that became a call throughout the research because that study did find a genetic locus that was associated with kidney disease. And of course, the importance is to allow people to understand the basic science of genetics so that no fault is inferred regarding having a disease. The interesting thing about the APOL1 variants is that not everybody who has two genetic variants is going to develop kidney disease. The development of kidney disease is a complex interaction between genetics and environments, and we're not exactly sure what will be the culmination of all those events that presents itself as a patient with poor kidney function, proteinuria, who will eventually need dialysis. But your other question was also pertinent regarding diseases that are associated with kidney disease. And there's another very common 
genetic disease, polycystic kidney disease, a completely different gene that's associated with the development of kidney disease in about um, half of the children who develop, whose parents have diabetes is also a common reason in the United States for people developing kidney disease as the diabetic vascular disease affects many organs in the body, including the kidney. And I know that you're interested in autoimmune disease and lupus is a very important cause of end-stage kidney disease in the United States, culminating in kidney failure for many people who have lupus, which includes a disproportionate number of women. There are other autoimmune diseases that result in catastrophic development of acute kidney injury, going on to chronic kidney disease, dialysis. So in many ways, we can take general advice about keeping healthy, but the important thing is if early kidney disease develops to be under the care of a physician because some of the drugs that we have used to treat hypertension, such as uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angioreceptor blockers, can be very important in stalling the progression of kidney disease. And there is a whole new set of drugs which were originally designed for patients with diabetes, the FGLT2 inhibitors, which may have very salutary effects on people with kidney disease. And there's a lot of excitement in the research field and clinical field about these drugs now. This week's podcast is brought to you by Gus and Penny's favorite, Nom Nom Dog Food, who are gifting your fur friends a no-risk two-week trial at half off. I have paid for our subscription with my own money for over a year. Our dogs have truly never been happier or healthier, and even our vet noticed how well they're doing and commented on how great their weight and health and shiny coat and less itchy, stinky paws, all the things. Literally make nom nom noises when the meals are served. There's a reason it's called nom nom dog food. Um, the, the dogs just seriously, they love it, which feels like such a gift considering how difficult it was to get Penny to eat for so long. She was so high maintenance, but because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real nourishing food personalized to our dog's specific needs, I was able to take a quiz when we first started and went with their board-certified veterinary nutritionist recommendations to ensure she got the exact right food and portions. And it has just been wonderful since. Gus is now fully on their food as well. And I love knowing that not only is it good for them, but it is costing us less money too. I, I couldn't believe how much money we saved when we switched. I didn't realize how much we were spending before on our freeze-dried food. But it was three times as expensive, and we still had to put human food on it to get Penny to eat. Nom Nom does not have any additives or fillers, and if your dog has sensitivities like ours, their pet microbiome database helps create better recipes for every breed, size, and digestive sensitivity. The low inflammatory food is nutrient-packed and made fresh, shipped to your door for free, all cooked in company-owned kitchens in the USA. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours. Why not try it? 
Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash wholeview. Spell trynom.com slash wholeview for 50% off. trynom.com slash wholeview. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. You've got nothing to lose. Give it a try. Or let your dog give it a try. Well, it's exciting that things are looking positive in, in terms of that. I'm wondering what kind of what leads to that point, though, right? I We've talked about the factors that can be at play. And I think of my grandfather. And he does not fit into any of those, right? He did not have diabetes. He was not an African-American. He was not a woman with lupus. With lupus. And perhaps it was hypertension, but he didn't have extremely high blood pressure or anything like that. And I wonder, like, I don't know the answer. And I wonder even if my father knows what could have been an identified cause for him. and so. I think to myself, I lean on the side of being dehydrated and I'm like, is that going to come into play? Are there other factors when you're looking at other patients other than these, I don't want to say generalities, right? But when we're being able to link genetics or association with another disease and we can group a lot of people fall into those, but not everybody does, correct? I, I think you can rest easy that dehydration is probably not the reason for what happened to your grandfather because there's a chapter in the book that talks about what happens if we drink too much water, what happens if we don't drink enough water, and the kidney is very good at dealing with the, the stresses. But the fastest growing part of the end-stage kidney disease population is actually elderly people. And one way to think about the kidney is this two boxes on either side of the aorta that are filled with blood vessels that branch out into thousands of different units that are basically tiny filters. And if one has blood vessel disease or vascular disease, people have heart disease or stroke, atherosclerotic vascular disease, those blood vessels can be clogged. And that's common reason for kidney failure especially in elderly populations, and they can be large vessels or small vessels. And in the past, those were often called hypertensive kidney disease, but they have now been categorized in other ways because people are not sure that hypertension is actually the cause for those diseases. But it's a common clinical syndrome of a, a disease that is marked by very poor kidney function with relatively little proteinuria, and the blood vessels are thought to be the major problem. It's also true that many patients um, don't have a kidney biopsy, which would diagnose a particular kidney disease, especially if it can be deployed at a time before the kidney is completely scarred and becomes undiagnosable. Uh, many patients with diabetes 
and disease attributed to hypertension don't have those biopsies. So truly the cause of the kidney disease has to be medically unknown, although we are able to place people in categories because we do medical statistics and people are placed into categories when they join the end-stage renal disease program. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He was in incredible health otherwise in his 90s. And so I just remember sitting with him in dialysis and seeing so many of the other patients around. And like you said, there was definitely a disparagement in some of the other individuals who are receiving dialysis. And I am curious what the treatment options look like for other people. My my grandfather went on to just need dialysis and then he had other health issues that eventually ended his life. It feels very odd to say, but most people would feel happy to have had his longevity of life and he was a very vibrant man up until the very end. And I think about how we made special meals for him because his doctors told us to avoid certain things. I remember just being shocked that he wasn't supposed to have potassium. And I remember thinking, well, potassium's so healthy for you. Uh, but we made meals for him where we had to, if we used potatoes, we had to soak it and do these kinds of things. But I know that a lot of people need more care than just modifying the foods that they're eating and going to dialysis a couple of times a week. You talk about additional treatments and the history of them, technologies and different kinds of things in the book. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of advancement of medical practices as they relate to different kinds of modern treatment that people need? Well, you hit on two points that I'd like to have a think about. Uh, one point is the burden of dialysis. So as you pointed out, I have a long career in kidney disease, and my time as a clinician in kidney disease started really just a little bit after the legislation that allowed the end-stage renal disease program to become an entitlement in the United States. So as an older physician, I am very enthusiastic about what the end-stage renal disease program has done, because before 1973, most people who had developed end-stage renal disease were just going to die because there was no treatment available. Or if there were treatments available, nobody could afford them. The dialysis costs more than $100,000 a year for a patient, and that cost is now largely taken up by the federal government. So I think it was an incredible advance and saved people's lives. And now, 50 years later, people talk about quality of life on dialysis, which is admittedly not good, but it is a life-saving treatment. And people talk about the burden of dialysis and the fact that many people don't feel completely well being on dialysis. So there's a little skepticism about it. I'm a great supporter because my whole career was taking care of dialysis patients who are by far majority, the overwhelming majority of patients with end-stage renal disease in the United States. But it points out the importance of kidney transplantation, which began almost at the same time 
as dialysis began. And the early experiments in transplantation in the United States started in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, just as dialysis was being developed as a technique in the United States. There have been enormous advances in the technology of dialysis over the last 50 years. And at the same time, there have been enormous advances in treatment of patients with the transplantation, which we now know, which we didn't 30 years ago, is superior in terms of benefiting patients in terms of both quantity or length of life and quality of life. So that's the preferred treatment. That statistic about transplantation is that there are many more patients on the waiting list for kidney transplants than there are transplants that are formed every year. So there, again, is a great disparity between the presence of a treatment and the availability of a treatment. So there are many patients who die waiting for their kidney transplant on dialysis, and there are many patients who wait a long time. African-Americans may wait to four or five years for a kidney transplant after starting dialysis. The other fact that became apparent about 30 years ago is that the rate of transplantation was not the same in white patients and African-American patients in the United States. And in a series of sobering but eloquent articles in the late 1990s, these disparities were pointed out that at every step in the transplantation pro uh, process from knowing about transplantation to evaluation for kidney transplant to being on the waiting list, actually receiving a kidney transplant, Black patients were relatively less able to complete the process. And that's a staggering indictment of the federal system, which should be characterized by equity for all people because the United States taxpayers are paying for these treatments. Startlingly, there was a paper just published in a, in a very reputable kidney journal suggesting that very little had changed since the publication of these initial articles illustrating the problem over the last 30 years. So we have a huge disparity in the United States regarding the access to transplantation between uh, people of different groups, different ethnicities, different colors in the United States. So that's something that I, I wanted to bring out in the book and tell that story to the general public. Just over the past two or three years, there are some exciting hopeful lights on the horizon. I think physicians in the field of kidney disease had been hearing about a field called xenotransplantation or the transplantation of organs from animals into humans as a way to address the lack of kidneys available to people in need. And because there had been so many experiments which showed such poor results over such a long time, it had become a laughingstock within the research community until two years ago when there were exciting developments in the University of Maryland 
New York University and the University of Alabama, where kidneys from specially gene-transformed pigs uh, were able to be transplanted into people in experimental conditions successfully for very short periods of observation. There was a very important heart transplant using a pig heart at the University of Maryland over the past year and a half, uh, a patient who survived for a relatively long period of time, measured in days, but an exciting group of principle. So the patient now is being very extensively studied and may become a reality in the next, say, 10 years or so. But it's a refocus now with the feasibility of approach to organ transplantation, where before it looked like we were at dead end. So that's extremely exciting for physicians, for researchers, and potentially for patients. I remember reading a story about the heart transplant. I don't remember where I saw it. But it is fascinating to see the development, and I hope that it um, is successful because it will help a lot of people, not just kidney patients, in the long term. And it, it reminds me of where they started with transplants in the history of your book and talking about how they started. It was just an interesting read for me. I'm a geek about that stuff. And so, spoiler alert, the success came from a breakthrough with twins. But I think for those of us who are otherwise unfamiliar with how transplants work in general, what are some things that maybe everyone should know about what that looks like, as you call quality of care for patients. I think that transplantation is a very exciting field. And you're right. Everything changed in 1954 with the transplantation of the Herrick twins, which actually showed not only the research community, but concerned patients in the United States that the transplantation was viable because at that time, after almost 10 years of research, it looked like knee transplantation would only result in kidney failure and death. So the approach is transplantation is going to be very much like the approach to transplantation of the Herod twins. It's going to be powered by heroic patients who are taking unknown risks uh, to put the research envelope forward. What the Herrick twins did was unheralded. Nobody really knew that this idea that twins had the same genetic makeup that would make them immunologically identical so that they could accept the transplant from each other. And we were working on trying to make xenotransplantation immunologically acceptable people in general. So it's it's an interesting, concordant process comparing the 1950s to the 2020s. So we see that with 70 years of research, we still have a long way to go, but the processes are the same. And again, that was one of the exciting things about the book, putting historical perspective into current practices. For many physicians working today, I am that they do not know the history because 
I did not know the history until I went back and looked at all these papers. And one of the nice things about doing medical history is you have everything laid out in the research um, literature, so you can go back, and if you're careful, you can map out all the developments, the successes, the failures, and the fights. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. With over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Even my kids used it for their first jobs. I used it many years ago and helped them. It is a completely different, improved functionality. So wonderful, honestly easy for all ages to use it. And if you haven't used it lately, I highly recommend because Indeed leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. The matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets, which was 100% our experience as well. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. In the minute that I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash whole view. Just go to Indeed.com slash whole view right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash whole view. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And I appreciate that. I'm sure other people are going to geek out on it as well because we're a family of, we're a curious family who loves to learn in general, but from history and that perspective is, it hits my heart in a special place. When you were talking about transplant and the developments of success in that, it reminded me of one of the developments there, which was immunosuppression and being able to move from twins into transplants from other people, one of the mechanisms that allows for that is immunosuppression, which I don't want to speak for you. I'm not a medical doctor, but essentially keeps the body from rejecting the transplant, which also reminded me of the higher risk for people on immunosuppressant medication of COVID-19. And COVID-19, as you mentioned in the book, impacts the kidney disease because it's referred to as this new plague. It affects vascular. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanisms in immune system in COVID-19 that increase the risk of end-stage kidney disease? Well, again, you raise some salient points. And the COVID-19 pandemic really changed the 
the rival statistics for end-stage renal disease patients, both people treated with dialysis and people treated with kidney transplantation. Dialysis patients are often transported in uh, small ambulettes. They have to be together. The dialysis unit patients are pretty much together, separated by not very many feet in lounge chairs where the dialysis goes on. And they're in close contact with nurses and technicians. So the death rate from COVID after 2020 in dialysis patients was very high. As you point out, kidney transplantation, when you don't have an identical twin, which is the vast majority of the population, is dependent on immunosuppression. And just in my own medical education, I started as a renal fellow in 1979, and transplantation immunosuppression was basically prednisone and a drug called azathioprine or imurin. And we saw frequent rejections. We saw frequent uh, infections with organisms that usually did not affect people with normal immune systems. So they had infections which were exotic, which were hard to treat. Everything really changed in 1983 with the uh, research into cyclosporin, a different kind of immunosuppressive drug, and called alphanurin inhibitor, which changed the clinical landscape in an enormous way. There were fewer rejections, transplant outcomes were better, transplants survived longer. And it, again, one of the things that people started training in the 80s don't have that perspective of how difficult transplantation was in the 1970s. Uh, the book deals with two vignettes, a patient from the 1980s and a patient from the 21st century who had very different courses with very different immunosuppressive drugs. But as you point out, the transplant population was very restricted. Many transplant patients really tried to restrict their lives very severely to avoid contact with people in developing COVID. And the statistics are just now being evaluated regarding the mortality of the death of transplant patients during this time. But I think you're right. The immunosuppressive drug, the balance between having a drug that suppresses the immune system to keep the kidney alive, affected many people during the COVID epidemic. COVID is interesting because, in many ways, because of the overwhelming infection it causes, it can initiate acute kidney failure in some cases, and those could go on to develop end-stage renal disease. There's now a lot of interest in whether COVID infection can affect those who have APOL1 gene variants and poor outcomes for those patients who are infected. But since we don't test COVID variants in people in the general population, very hard to do that epidemiologic research, but you raised some very nice points there. It's sad to hear. Um, it's just seemingly no end to um, the tragedy that the pandemic caused and the negative outcomes. I just, I feel for so many, not just families and friends who had losses, but the health practitioners who 
went to work every day knowing that they were going to be surrounded by such tragedy and it's hard to think about i'm glad we're obviously exiting that time period with medical advancements and understanding but the long-term effects are just starting to be understood and it's bad news so let's end on something positive i like to always leave listeners with something positive that they can take away an actionable suggestion that they can do to be of service to either work on themselves or for others. I know your work is so rooted in social justice. I'd love to hear your ideas to either be of service to yourself and your kidney health or to help others. That would be a nice way to end the conversation. I think I portray at the end of the book, who are the real heroes of the story? And I think the real heroes of the story are two. They're the patients who face kidney failure every day and transcend it and go on living lives, whether they are on dialysis, whether they're waiting for a kidney transplant, or whether they're successfully transplanted. The other story of the book is about living donors and how living donors can change, change the outcomes, not just for one person, but in the case of daisy chains, they can change the outcome for many people if they participate in that kind of hair transplant experience. So we have many potential heroes in the world of kidney disease, including the scientists who are trying to come up with better treatment. So we can support people who are considering living donation. We can support our scientists and we can think highly of the federal agencies that provide regulation and oversight so that healthcare is truly healthy and safe and effective for patients. So I want to thank you very much for inviting me to be on this show. Absolutely. And I, I love the suggestion. My takeaway, what I heard you say, was making sure that we are on the organ donation list and someone might be moved to get on a list to actually donate a kidney. But I know for me, it was important when my children got their license that they chose to be organ donors. And if you're able to give blood or give marrow, our podcast behind the curtain, lovely Lauren has actually just got a notification to be a potential bone marrow donation person. So there's a lot of different ways that we can give back to a lot of people who are waiting for these kinds of help. And as you said, be a hero, but also the people who are undergoing these treatments and especially helping move medicine forward are the heroes themselves as well. So as I said at the beginning, I just want to give another note of appreciation for the lifetime of work that you've put in to help underrepresented groups and those who did not previously have access to care and the continued evolution of informed quality of care and all of those things. It's sad how rare that journey is for a lot in the medical community. And I thank you for the work that you've done. And listeners, if you want to find out more about Dr. Kimmel's research and everything that he shared today, you can check out the book, The Body's Keepers, which I mentioned is coming out next week. And we'll put a link in the show notes for you as well. 
If you've enjoyed listening to the show today, it would be wonderful if you left a review or subscribed in whatever podcast app you're listening. And remember, you can always get ad-free versions of the show delivered to your inbox at patreon.com slash the whole view. And as always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thank you again for coming on to The Whole View, Dr. Kimmel. It was wonderful to chat with you today. Thank you for inviting me. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.